I smell the smell of roasted Irishman. This podcast may contain adult language and themes. Hello and welcome to TV DNA, The Peaky Blinders, Season 6, Episode 6, Lock and Key. My name is Adam Hemming. And for the final time, by order of The Peaky Blinders, it's Grace Chapman. Hello! And Damien Cooper. There will be a war and one of you will die. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what, Grace, I'll go. I've, I've had my time, you know. You're younger than me. You've got a lot more to offer. <laughs> I think that's, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so the final ever episode of the Peaky Blinders, six whole seasons come to an end, although there will be a movie, we're told. What were your initial thoughts on this final, final episode? I thought it was masterful. I am so happy. I didn't know how they were going to do it. When you love a series so, so much, and it's been in our lives for what, almost a decade? You know, when it's coming to an end, you, you, I felt quite apprehensive. I didn't know how they were going to do it, if they could pull it off. And my God, I think they absolutely smashed that. I, I whooped many times. I gasped many times. It had heart. It had some of the best performances. It had quiet moments. It had suspense. It had action, banging music. I just thought it was absolutely awesome. I hated it. I thought it was a load of rubbish. <laughs> no, not really. I loved it as well. <laughs> I mean, I keep on going back and forth about the final conceit. And I think on the whole, I love it. But just every so often I go, ah. But I know deep down that I love it. And I think that it's good. And I keep on thinking back and thinking, ah, now, was there any nonsense or unnecessary lies that we were fed previously? And I keep scanning it through and I can't seem to find any other than the actual conceit itself. Fair play. It was a good move. Yeah, this season as a whole has felt a little bit slower in places than most peaky seasons and a bit more introspective and I think there are obvious reasons for that that we've discussed previously but my word this final episode had me gripped from beginning to end and I, I agree I thought it was just the perfect way it's not an easy thing to finish a season or to finish a whole series and to do it well which is something we've talked about before with other shows but I thought this was a really really great send-off for the Peaky Blinders shall we get into it Let's do it. So we open with Michael getting out of prison and he is offered a drink or a woman and he declines both in favour of his wife, who obviously is a woman, but not the type that he was being offered. And we're reminded again, as if we needed it, that he's going to kill Tommy Shelby. Yeah, I think really what I would have preferred, given that he still had that bit of face for her, is after he'd been asked if he wanted a drink or a her they said, no, I want to see my barber. <laughs> a razor, get please. It, get it straight out the peak of the cap and on that top lip. <laughs> we expected this, though, didn't we? We expected Michael to be getting out. It would have been very, very dull final, final episode if he hadn't. So he, they, he, they timed it very well for the final episode for Michael to be getting out. He has a, a brief visit with Gina where she's performing certain acts for her husband. And I can't really remember any of the conversation that they had. It was pretty... <laughs> Pretty meaningless. It was about the well-timed imaginary sex, right? Without any tech. What do we call it? The synchro one. 
I think <laughs> it was that, but also that was also when we have the conversation where Jin is really pushing for Arthur to go, for everyone to go. And one of the few moments where we see Michael not being a complete bellend, where he says, no, it's just Tommy. I don't want to kill Arthur. No women, no children. It's just Tommy. And Gina is not happy. Gina is still pushing. It has to be, all of them have to be gone. And it's clear at that point that Michael isn't completely beyond the Peaky Blinders. It's also pretty clear that he's not in, in charge of the situation, really, is he? He's, he's very much a pawn in all of this. Kind of a lot of the interactions that he has with Jack Nelson's men are, you're going to do this, and this is what you're going to do. And he's he's, you know, by no means the top dog that, Tommy Shelby has been so almost completely unfair to compare. So we'll come back to Michael a bit later on, but we next move on to Lizzie and Tommy at Arrow House. And Lizzie's not not happy, obviously, and fair play given the revelations from the previous episode. And we learn that she's going to be leaving Tommy. Yeah, what I really liked about this scene is that we open up on two caged birds. And I thought, wow, yes, please. Let's get on with it. This is amazing. Just brilliant. I mean, they're just so good at it. Every tiny effing detail is spot on. Yeah, I think Lizzie had the most amazing line of the smoke from your daughter's funeral is still in your clothes and you slept with someone else. I mean, come on. That is absolutely killer. And as ever, she delivered it perfectly but I mean I would be going into the final episode I really I I didn't know what to expect from a lot of it but I just wanted Lizzie to get out I just was desperate for Lizzie to leave that whole situation and leave that man and she has so I'm I'm really happy about that Lizzie is free good times yeah that was exactly what it made me think of during watching the episode I was like oh Grace will be happy because all she wanted was for Lizzie to be free and and, (laughs) these cage birds again I was I picked up up on that and was like yeah this is this is really great stuff so Charles wants to go with Lizzie rather than staying with Tommy who's never there and Tommy says that he can go and that he can take Ruby's horse with him got a place they can go to the horse will forget Ruby that's how it is with horses and Charles asks, where will you go, Dad? And he doesn't answer, doesn't tell them. Um, again, a- another opportunity for him to, to say, well, obviously, he's, he's not going to do that. And that was never on the cards. I think we can talk forever about Killian Murphy and, and, and his role as Tommy and his performance. But in this scene in particular, there was such a, he's got this incredible way of being so still and not answering anyone's questions really, just barreling through and just saying what he needs to say, but this like real sadness in his face and behind his eyes that's just like, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how Killian does it, but yeah, I really spotted that in this scene. Like, I think he was hurting, but I think he wanted to do an act of good, didn't he? He wanted to let his son go and he's been trying to be good this whole time. And I feel like that was like an opportunity for him to do that and actually start to kind of be this good man, let his son go. But it was pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, he knows that Charles doesn't really have what it what it takes to be a Peaky Blinder, certainly. And he's the master of compartmentalising stuff, isn't he? He's very, very good at sort of shifting this stuff around in his brain so that he can deal with what he needs to deal with. Just not particularly good at the emotional connection with other people. <laughs> Speaking of which, 
we then see Arthur and Tommy in Tommy's office and Arthur has nicked the keys and he's got into Tommy's office and he's read the doctor's report and he knows what he knows basically that Tommy is is dying and of and he wants to have a deep meaningful about it Tommy just doesn't have time for it yeah. my big note for this is does Arthur know was it about seven times in a row he says you think I didn't know Michael I know I know it was so quality Paul Anderson is so fantastic and Arthur is brilliant and we haven't really had very much from him in this final series and and I do think by this final series has been less because of it but it was nice to get that scene have Thomas and Arthur like in the wine cellar just the two of them having a proper conversation or in this case Tommy shutting it down but Arthur this time trying to drive that conversation and then they talk about the fight again don't they that they talked about so I think it was good that we 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 visited that again and then the other thing that I noticed at that point is then we pan up and we see this big painting of John Boy so we've we've had lots of Polly we've seen Polly's picture obviously Polly's voice for whatever reason what is the actor called that plays John Joe Cole. Joe Cole, yeah. I was worried I was going to name someone by the wrong footballer name like I used to do at the beginning of this podcast. I, I wonder if we didn't see any VT and stuff from Joe Cole because he left under uh, under a bit of a black cloud, so maybe that's why we didn't see more of him. But it was nice to see the, the missing brother. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a brilliant throwback to very, very early TV DNA podcast episodes. Our hardcore fans are going to love that. But yeah, I, I enjoyed having that moment of kind of, it was almost like a farewell to to that character, wasn't it? To, to John. There was a moment that I forgot to mention in one of the earlier episodes where we had the camera sort of paused on a portrait of Grace, a pertinent point. I can't remember exactly when it was. So yeah, we are, we're getting these little nods to the characters who've been there throughout the, the different series. But yeah, the, the the Tommy and Arthur scene, this was the last time we saw those two characters together. And um, the hug at the end, he's hugging him so hard. You can see the vein on the back of Arthur's head. Sort of pop. It's really sort of bulging out the back of his neck. Yeah, it was really emotional and, and brilliant. And yeah, I think, we're, again, we're gonna come on to a bit more of Arthur later on. He was, he was superb in this episode. I think we talked about it previously that Arthur is just such a shell of the by order of the Peaky Blinders that he was previously. And that hair, I can't believe there was a period of time when I thought that hair was fantastic. It is now just terrible. I don't know what's happened, but it just looks like, and this is a really niche reference. It's definitely before your time, Grace. It's barely my time. So Adam will almost certainly... I will hopefully get it. Do you remember Bagpuss, Adam? Yeah, I do, yeah. Was there like, and this could just be some childlike fever dream, was there a crow, like a Mr. McCafferty, not Mr. McCafferty, that's obviously cats. Are you referring to Professor Yaffle? Yes, Professor Yaffle. Thank you, I knew you did. I think that he looks a little bit like Professor Yaffle. So when I first met my wife, Catherine, she had a pet rabbit called Peter. And Peter had a, a friend, which was a stuffed bagpuss. Yeah, and he was Peter's special friend. Oh, God. 
Yeah. Oh. So I can't really think of Bagpuss without thinking of him in compromising situations with a rabbit. So you're swiftly moving on. No, what it is, the hair situation, it's too long at the top. That's the problem. So it's coming down very floppy and it looks like rabbit ears, not to bring up rabbits again, but it just is bad. I agree. It's quite, it's quite distracting. I mean, obviously this scene was, it was so moving. And I think what it was is that Tommy... He clearly didn't want to say goodbye to anyone. He just wanted to do what he needed to do and then go off and, and kill himself. That was the plan. And so Arthur finding out about this, you know, as we were saying, like it kind of has, Tommy has to kind of at least slightly engage in that emotional side of dying, which he seems to have just like shut down completely. My other thought was, does Arthur know how to read an X-ray? <laughs> well, I assume there was some sort of report attached to the X-ray. <laughs> He was like, oh, I can see it. I was like, what? But you know why they have the hair shaved? I'm going to say it's to do with lice in the trenches or something. You've got a vague memory. Back when I was properly acting, of course, I, I did a couple of First World War films, so I had some unbelievable undercuts on screen knocking about somewhere. The only thing I wanted to mention about this scene was something... It, it felt really different to the rest of Peaky, because it was only shot from one place. I don't know if you noticed, but the camera just sort of turned ever so slightly. There was no cut in it at all. And that's just so unusual for Peaky. It's such a stylistic show, you know, we're chopping, we're changing, we're close-ups, we're walking in slow-mo through fog. Like, but this was such a quiet scene and the camera did very little, actually. It was all about these two men and these two actors in that moment. And it felt like super intimate. And I think that's why it had such an impact. I felt like I was literally standing in the corner of the room with them. I thought that was such a smart choice. Really good. Maybe they could only bear to do it the once. And so they were like, we're going to do this in one shot, one take. And Tommy says that he's going to let Arthur know where and when it's going to happen. And that Arthur's going to light the flame. It'll be a wagon and you've got to light the flame. So the other storyline that's kind of been intercut with all of this a little bit is that they need to go to Arrow House and they've got to go and dig up some bodies and empty out the wine cellar and do all of this business. So um, Duke and Billy and Finn and Isaiah and Isaiah's uh, cousins and nephews and friends are all going along as well. Winnie the Pooh's rabbits, friends and relations. Isaiah's friends and relations are all going along as well. It's a party, Adam. It's a party. Yeah. <laughs> it's a party, absolutely. They all go up there and we see them sort of doing bits and pieces and uh, Billy and Finn show up to the party. Yeah, I just want to quickly jump back to that scene in, in the garrison that there is so many little bits in that that I absolutely fucking love. And I particularly love that bit. And Billy just kind of, oh, ha, as he sits down. His balls are still rather tender, I'm afraid. No one likes scabby balls, right? But uh, I think he's uh, Grace is really vociferously shaking her head at the idea of scabby balls, listeners. I just love that. And there was another bit that I really enjoyed, and I believe it's that scene where Finn turns up late and is just being a dickhead and useless. And he says, oh, he can't drink because his wife has said he can't and he has to be back by six. And Arthur gives him a drink, looks at his watch and says, the clock strikes six when you fucking tell it to. 
That's <laughs> how the blinders roll, man. Yes, yes. I also didn't understand a word Finn said in this scene. That accent is wild, wildly out of control. But my other favourite bit from this scene is when Billy is obviously like, oh, it's going to be a, a party and Arthur's going to be here. Is that this Sunday or, or is it next Sunday? And Tommy's like, this Sunday. He's like, so this Sunday, not next. So this one coming. It's like, subtle Billy, Jesus. Such an excellent informant. Yeah, just, just remind me again, when is it that Arthur will be alone in the garrison? Do you mind if I write that down? And then he tries to hide it by asking if there's going to be women at this party, right? As if everyone's going to go, lads, completely forget about the fact you're definitely dodgy. The moment where they, they come in and it's quite seismic, I think, the events that happen in Arrow House. So Billy and Finn arrive uh, expecting a party and what they get instead is Duke ruling the roost and telling them what's what. Classic gangster vibes from the moment they walked into that building I thought how are you not aware of how this looks like no one's giving you a definitive answer you're being very quickly shifted further and further into but it's like that scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci's character thinks he's going to get made and in and in the end he gets well indeed he, he gets assassinated and it's that same thing. Oh, yeah, everything's fine. Come here. Keep walking. Keep walking. Don't question it. There's a bit of a, a shift for Duke. There was, there was an earlier scene where he's with Charlie in, in, the, in the peaky armory, um, you know, with all the, all the weapons. And Charlie's kind of quizzing him to work out whether or not he has got what it takes to be able to do what needs to be done. And clearly some time has passed where Duke has spent a bit of time in, in the yard with Charlie and with Curly. But we, we previously left Duke very much being a, I'm not a people person. I'm good with horses and dogs. I'm not really into all the um, other stuff. And, and Charlie clarifies with Duke, you know, you, you walked out when the, they were dealing with the referee. And Duke sort of says, well, it was just unfair. It wasn't a fair fight. And that's what he objected to. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was squeamish. And he has, in fact, killed a man before. And then Charlie asks him whether he can keep a secret or not. That's the other big question. Come back to this meeting at Arrow House and Duke asks Finn to kill Billy, revealing him as the informant and hands Finn a gun and tells him, you've got to kill Billy now. So challenging Finn and seeing where his loyalties lie, Finn turns the gun on Isaiah and Duke, but his gun doesn't fire it clicks and then duke takes out billy and reveals that charlie had told him to make sure the first two chambers were empty when you hand the gun to finn so he faked out finn dealt with billy and then he banishes finn from the peaky blinders from the family you are no longer a member of this family and finn retorts that he will he'll remember this and he'll be back and potentially setting up some next generation rivalry between Duke and Finn. But I thought it was pretty huge. I mean, I remember Finn season one being this young lad who was nearly blown up in a car, you know, was always the baby of the bunch and, and kind of looked after. And he just never really stepped up, did he? Never really stepped up to be a, a proper blinder. Yeah, he just was useless, wasn't he? And, and Isaiah was always looking a little bit tastier than him, should things happen. And, and that's what I really liked about that scene where 
Duke says kill him and Finn immediately looks at Isaiah and Isaiah's like well yeah of course you you have to kill him why why are you looking at me and just yeah I just thought all that was fascinating and I cannot wait to see what the deal with Isaiah is because I don't know if he can be a follower I think he has the eyes of being to use the name of my current favourite show, a top boy, rather than someone who follows. Yeah, there's definitely now a lot of people will be vying for that top spot, won't they? And they'll each think that they have different reasons for being up there. Some will be blood reasons. Some will be, I've done more than that guy. I've proved myself more. So that's going to be really interesting, the kind of shuffling around of the, of the Peaky Blinders now. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this. And yeah, like you say, the looks were so quick. You know, if you, if you blinked, you might miss those kind of really quick moments between all these boys. But um, yeah, my first whoop of the series was when Duke, I think he yeah, banished Finn and said, by order of the Peaky Blinders. And I was like, yes! <laughs> he's like, I'm in, I'm part of the family. He had authority. You know, he's a Shelby now. So um, I'm really enjoying the actor's performance as well. He's got a real playfulness to him that I liked. I'm excited to see what he does next in the world of the blinders for sure. Yeah, I think he's brilliant. I think he's really, really great. And I, I, I really love the character of Duke. Such a late entry, but really made an impact in those three, two, three episodes that he was in. And I just thought was was superb in this. And definitely feels like Tommy is more confident in leaving him to deal with, you know, the next, the darker side of what the Peaky Blinders do and what the company's all about. So we next move on to the action element of the episode, but this is the IRA rocking up at the garrison. Arthur's all alone having a drink. Our friend Laura, Laura McKee and her two IRA goons come into the garrison, go into the the little Peaky Blinders room, and there is not Arthur, but Charlie putting himself in, in the line of fire. And then, yeah, this incredible shootout ensues from there i mean it was just stunning i mean as we would expect from the peaky blinders very atmospheric really tense yeah so i've got a question for you both do you think so when he turns up at the pub there's a random dude outside god bothering and talking about how god or jesus is looking down on him so my question is, because obviously the sniper comes out of the truck. So that's him telling him that Jeremiah is in position, right? Yeah, there was definitely a signal from that God guy outside. Definitely. But my question, just to bring, lead on from that, is if I was the RA and I was going to like shoot someone and there was like a God guy outside shouting, no one else there, I'd be like, I think he might be something to do with it. <laughs> Who's he talking to? I think also they missed the trick because they'd already confirmed that the Shelby's only drink in that little side room. If they're going to surprise kill him, why not just unload round after round through that glass? I don't understand. Really poor planning from the IRA. Maybe there are um, Irish Republicans who drink in that bar as well and they didn't want to necessarily shoot the wrong person. It was just glorious. And what I really loved about this was that this was the old gang. This was Jeremiah and Charlie and Arthur taking on the IRA. 
gaining revenge on Paul's murder. That incredible moment where Charlie's coming back and they're all sat on the step outside the garrison and Arthur sends Charlie inside and tells them we're all still in France. Yeah, that was that was very moving, that bit. But I mean, the shootout itself, the like the kind of banging bullets off the metal cylinders, the blue electricity coming down and lighting it up, the fog, the children arriving. The tension was mad. When the children were there, I was like, I can't take this. I actually can't take this. This is too much. But I also noticed the mum said to the daughter who was picking up something, don't stay around here. The Peaky Blinders will get you. And it's like. The Birmingham's bogeymen. <laughs> Defo. And when the mustard gas came out, I for a second I thought, that can't be chlorine gas. What? And then obviously the distinctive colour. And I was like, okay, that's still pretty mad that they've gone for a chemical warfare on the streets of Small Heath. Yeah, the, the keepsake from Passchendaele was what they called it. When Arthur and I think it's Charlie with him walk, or I can't remember, walk out from that fog in those gas masks, that was a very haunting image, wasn't it? And obviously, really amazing final moments of Laura and Arthur when she says something like, vengeance is for the Lord, and he says, not in Small Heath it ain't. And he shoots her, and then he says, rest in peace, Paul. Ah, oh, yes. Amazing. Amazing lines. There is something very cool about a gas mask. I refer you to animated show Arcane, um, which uses this to brilliant effect. Um, you might have to go back 20 or 30 podcast episodes to hear me chatting about Arcane, which is a really brilliant show and, and features gas masks in a similarly cool way. So... We then move on to Miquelon, uh, our French-Canadian island, um, which we visited way back in episode one of this season. And we see, I can't remember exactly the order of this, but we see the we see Michael and his company arriving. I think we've heard earlier on that Johnny Dogs is dealing with something, right? We've definitely had it dropped that Johnny Dogs is doing something. And, it, and, we, and we know it's linked to this. It becomes clear that Michael and his crew have a bomb. They're very gingerly carrying around and popping in the back of a car and uh, waiting for Tommy to arrive. Tommy's coming in on a plane, isn't he? Coming in on a plane and it's bad weather and they think he's not going to make it on the plane. And we see Tommy on the plane and he's getting sort of little flashbacks and we're getting reminders of all the stuff that's happened to Tommy over the last five seasons in five episodes and then he finally lands and comes into the bar how amazing was it seeing him walk back into hotel robert just gets to the bar and there's that dude that he had the altercation he just turns looks him and then has a drink because obviously last time he was talking about how he doesn't drink and how that keeps all the monsters at bay or the thoughts or whatever and there he is immediately downs like a giant whiskey I was thinking, for some reason, I also thought Hotel Robert must be like, are we on some sort of blog in Birmingham? Where are these, all these brummies? <laughs> a little brummy trip advisor. Yeah, I really enjoyed going back in there. And I was sorry not to have a little pigeon throwback. I really just wanted a pigeon to just fly, just one, just to fly past in the background. 
we are going to talk about our favorite Peaky Blinders moments. And actually, that probably is one of mine, is that slow motion pigeon flying across as Tommy leaves Michelon in, in episode one of this season. Um, but I, I really love that little nod with the Michelon native. That, that Tommy gives him a little nod. I thought that was great. And, and, and almost I was like, yeah, he's got this. As if there was ever any doubt in my mind, that little nod told me, Tommy has this sewn up and it's not going to be an issue. So what happens is they, they, they're going to get into this car and drive somewhere. Tommy and Michael are going to go in the front car and everyone else is going to go in the back car. Although there's probably four other chaps who are all going to squeeze into the other car. And then Michael remembers that he's left his cigarettes and has to go back into the bar. And uh, Tommy sits and waits and waits and waits. This, once again, was classic gangster film stuff all of it they are oh i just need to go and get something so i'm going to leave you there exposed and i just think from the get-go it's obvious that michael just wasn't on top of this and he was too nervous and he really did not have the support of nelson's men they were waiting for him to fuck up i feel like and then they, they, and almost if they were hoping he'd fuck up because then maybe they'd have a, an excuse to off him as well yeah, totally. He was just not, you're right, he's just not in control of this. But I thought it was very clever. It's often because we knew the time that the bomb was going to go off, or we knew roughly we had a sense of 20 minutes from this time, so we could work it out in our heads. And often with like ticking bomb, thick, like tropes, you often see the time, you know, like multiple times, like a watch, and you see it creeping and creeping closer. People were checking their watches in this scene the whole time, and we never saw the time. And I thought that was so clever because actually it made the suspense even worse. I was like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how much time is left. It was great. Well, yeah, and of course, as Michael goes into the car, we we see it pan down a little bit, and there's a little drawing next to the door handle of the car. Tommy looks at it, and it doesn't really give much away. I feel like maybe there's an element of a slight loosening in the shoulders. And he goes and he sits in and then Michael gives uh, a performance worse than anything we've seen Finn or Gina do, which really does say something, where he says, I've just got to go and get my cigarettes. The tapping on the chest. Oh, where, where, where are they? Gosh darn it. Best go get them. Um, but of course, the, the bomb, Johnny Dogs has managed to switch the bomb from one car to the other. So when the appointed explosion happens and we see... The explosion happened whilst Michael's in the bar, right? He's in the bar waiting for this explosion to happen. The explosion happens, glass flies everywhere. Michael steps out, Tommy is there. Talks about the fact that he's he's been hearing Paul in his head for some time. And... Do you mind recording a podcast? I was almost a little bit disappointed because that shot is from the bar looking at Michael and it's blocking so much of it. And it was panning around to the side. And I know it would have been cheesy as fuck, but I think they could have got away with it. That's when I would have liked to have seen Tommy standing in the door. Obviously, going out there and just holding that reveal, just that moment longer for us, was really good. Did either of you think that Tommy's car had blown up? Honestly, this whole episode, I was on tenterhooks. So I just didn't know if I was coming or going at this point. So yes, Damo, I thought there was a possibility it could have been Tommy's car. 
there was no doubt for me that it was the other car that had blown up. The conversation afterwards and Tommy shoots Michael in the eye and then says, I have no limitations. Tommy really proving again that he's pretty unkillable. I really liked Johnny Dogs's line, tell me I've done a good thing here, Tommy. And I just want to briefly say if it wasn't for these good men of Charlie, Curly and Johnny Dogs, this would all have been over a long, long time ago. The unsung heroes of the Shelbys. What I quite liked was the line of, I'm going to go look at the fog. We're all going to go look at the fog after this. Yeah, again, a really nice send off for Johnny Dogs, who has been incredibly useful to Tommy over the over the se- seasons. Um, always, always come good with whenever he's been needed. Johnny Dogs, hats off to him. And then who should turn up in Michelon? But our old friend Alfie Solomons. I smell the smell of roasted Irishman. <laughs> What a line to come in on. I'm a big fan of every scene that he's been in, but I wasn't so sure about this one, I'm afraid. I actually think it was possibly the weakest scene of the uh, episode, and I say that as a massive Tom Hardy fanboy. It just seemed very expositional. All right, so this is what's done. Okay, so the Solomons have got this and they've given half of Camden. I wonder if that's going to be an issue down the road, that now half of Camden belongs to the blinders. Is Alfie looking at Tommy thinking, do you know what, I think I can probably take that back? I've got a feeling, and I just this is just a suspicion, I've got nothing to base this on, but I think there was meant to be a scene at Liverpool Docks involving Jack Nelson, who we were told in the last episode was going to Liverpool, involving Hayden Stagg, played by Stephen Graham, who was brought in for these two random scenes and not much else, and between Alfie Solomons. And I think for some reason, that scene didn't happen. And I think that was the scene, potentially a big shootout scene, where Jack Nelson was going to be killed, Hayden Stagg was going to do something, And it would be revealed that Alfie was going to be taking over the the Boston side of the operation. But because that scene didn't happen, we then had to have this Alfie Solomon scene in Michelon to, you know, wrap that little bit up. But for me, the plot threads that have been left hanging are Jack Nelson and Hayden Stagg. And so I, I wonder, maybe it was a budgetary thing. Maybe it was a time thing. Maybe they did the scene, it just didn't work, so they cut it. Maybe it was too close to the IRA fight and too similar to that. I don't know. But my feeling is that that scene would have tied up those three storylines really, really neatly. And that was what I was expecting. To You know, there was so much talk about why did we even bother going to Liverpool Docks and having that conversation between Tommy and Hayden Stagg? If there wasn't going to be a scene there with these guns arriving, it just doesn't make sense to me. Phenomenal spot, Adam. I think you're right. And that definitely does square away why that was so eggy, which I believe is a technical term. I like, why was Alfie there? What was his purpose? Other, like, than you say, to explain what the film might look like. I have one purpose. He does highly recommend being dead to Tommy. And as we come to the ending, I'm going to bring this back up again. But if you ever needed reminding, Alfie was was killed at the end of season four, I believe. 
and then revealed to still be alive in season five, although alive with everybody else in the world thinking that he was dead and that he, he recommended that, that as a as a way of, of going. So I thought that was quite nice. And I, I, I did enjoy the scene between Tommy and Alfie and it was it was great to see the character again. It did get my first laugh of this episode with Is It Clap? It was interesting that he chose to tell Alfie that he was dying and, and not anybody else. Well, they're best friends, aren't they? You're right. And it's that idea of being equals and, and having been both as friends and as adversaries, but always that level of mutual respect. They're both in the game at a high level. Yeah, I think they're the closest each other has to appear, I think, rather than, you know, all these other people that come and go within a season. So we then move on to Arrow House. So they're emptying Arrow House because it's going to be blown up and turned into housing for poor people, essentially. That's what he's doing. This is Tommy's doing something good. So he's destroying what he built up and, and the, the kind of um, high life that he built um, in order to do good for other people was incredible to see Arrow House being blown up and completely destroyed. And then we get this dinner in the woods, very much back to their gypsy roots and, and the meal in the woods, although there's fine china and glassware and all the rest of it. This was just kind of a farewell scene, really, wasn't it? A farewell to so many different characters. Uh, Tommy recommends Ada goes into politics if there's ever an opening. A really lovely, sweet goodbye with Curly. And then there's a sort of moment with Charles and Tommy goes and whispers something to Duke. What do you think it was that he said to Duke? I, I thought it has to be something like, you have to be the dark or something like that. Yeah, I agree. It has to be that or it had to be, or something like, no matter what happens, you have to protect Charlie or, or probably you have to protect your brother. Maybe he might have, or, or maybe he whispered a limerick in his ear because as we know, Tommy is quite the poet. <laughs> When I saw Ada at the dinner, I was like, oh, just didn't get enough of her in this last episode at all. I mean, we literally got this scene where she was a bit like, what's going on? Where are you going? For how long? It all just felt, ugh. I was like, oh, don't give her that, those lines. She's got the, she's had some of the best lines this series. And then she kind of landed on this scene, but obviously thrilled about the Ada matriarchy. That's what I was gunning for. Yeah, there, there was an element of the, where will I go? What will I do? Wasn't there? What I couldn't help but think in this episode was, oh, man. I think maybe because, like you said, Ada was kind of given this bullshit, these bullshit lines to speak that went against everything that she'd had previously. But I couldn't help but think, oh, what would they have given Aunt Paul? Mm. What would Aunt Paul have been doing at this Mad Hatter's Tea Party-esque scene? She'd have been in her sunnies even though it wasn't sunny, <laughs> sat at the edge of the table smoking and just just kind of rolling her eyes lovingly. Oh, I miss her so much. Although she wouldn't be too happy about Michael not being there. <laughs> oh, yes! Yeah. Um, uh, that would have been my point. I, want, I wonder where she, where she would have sat in the plans for, for Michelon. You know that scene when Tommy walks away from our house and explodes? All I could think was, don't trip, don't trip. You just ruined the whole thing, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, it was CGI'd though. That's where there was so much smoke. It was CGI'd, okay. <laughs> it was. 
That would be a nightmare. I know what. Imagine. I thought it wasn't for a for a moment, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I if I was in that shot, I would absolutely trip and fall over. I know they have a decent budget, but I'm not sure destroying a stately home is is kind of. Don't ruin it for me. It was real. It was real. You're absolutely right, Grace. It was real. (laughs) So then we get to the ending, and Tommy is on his own with a campfire and his wagon. And he's waiting out time. He's gonna he's gonna wait out until he's he, he can't take it any longer. And yeah, we get this incredible moment with Ruby calling out to him and a little scene with him, Ruby reaching out to him from beyond the grave. He asks, Did Paul send you? Really a beautiful moment. And she tells him that he's got to he's got to stay alive and he's got more to do. He needs to go back. And yeah, and it turns out he then goes to the fire, picks up this newspaper and see Mosley's and Mitford's wedding photo. And in the wedding photo is his very own doctor. Just to to jump back quickly, that establishing shot of him lying there by that fire that had gone out. I thought, oh, it. Is, is he dead? Is this where we cut to him not moving? And, and that's the very end. And, the, and then we have that moment of him like coming to it. Of, oh, OK, good. All right. Good, good. And I should have realised at that point that this is just going to be a continual fake out. Yeah, I mean, it, he, he basically he's lying there and then he sees a singular crow. That's some sort of s- signal. He then goes and, and, you know, flicks the, the penny and we get heads. So that's some, and then and then he sort of thinks, well, it's now, isn't it? And it, it says one month later when we when we cut to him. So has he been waiting for a crow and flicking that penny for a month? What's been going on? That'll make you go blind flicking your penny. Stop it! <laughs> you know what? When I said flicking the penny, I could see you both your heads. You were both no, Adam. You were. <laughs> No, I was totally thinking about the fact that I'd forgotten <laughs> about the Mosley Mitford scene in the House of Commons. We see we have Mitford and Mitford and Tommy, and she's basically saying, "Let's have sex here," and he's saying, "Yeah, fine, I'll do it, but you know, this is I'm I'm done with all of you guys and and all of this bullshit." And then Mosley comes in and gives him the wedding invitation, and he has to politely decline. More importantly than that, Tommy says, "All right, fine." You have to come over here. We're going to have sex on these benches because I do not fuck on Tory benches. And can I say, preach, preach. And also the world's most accurate paper aeroplane. I think that was CGI. You think that was CGI? No, I didn't think that was CGI. But the the state home exploding was real. I'm making a joke, you dafties. I, I actually think this, the paper airplane was CGI. There's no, there is no conceivable way someone could make such a perfect airplane that would fly so straight and true. <laughs> straight and true. But you know, everyone's got their own foolproof method of making a paper airplane, right? So there'd be every single member of the crew would be like, going, no, you just need to widen the wings, or you just need to develop the tip, or be chaos. So you have to what? You have to develop the tip. <laughs> he said, widen the tip, which is worse. <laughs> You definitely need to see a doctor, Adam. We say this every episode. (laughs) Right, let's go back to the ending then. The thing that I missed out that Ruby crucially says is, you're not dying. And um, so he he sees this picture of the doctor at at the Macy's wedding in Germany, attended by the Fuhrer. 
And then he confronts the Doctor, and he could kill the Doctor. I mean, he lets the Doctor go, doesn't he? Basically, the plan of Mosley was to give him this fake tuberculoma so that he would end up killing himself. And Tommy says, you all realise that nobody is capable of killing Tommy Shelby apart from Tommy Shelby. That line of Alfie Solomon's ringing in my ears of, I can highly recommend being dead. I wonder, as Tommy rides off on his white horse and burns his wagon, whether Tommy is going to allow the rest of the world to believe that Tommy Shelby is dead, whether they found a way of killing Tommy Shelby without killing Tommy Shelby, that Tommy Shelby is reborn and has this other opportunity to do whatever it is that he he wants to do, which at the very least would be star in in the Peaky Blinders movie, I imagine. Yeah, I think it's definitely assumed that he faked his death, right, essentially, in that way. So he can, yeah, he can just, as he rode off, he felt better. It was the most amazing shot through the kind of fire and the kind of framing of the wagon open doorway and him just like riding over the hills of England. Yes, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But it was a bit of a whirlwind, wasn't it? I was so sure he was going to die. And we were really relishing in those final final moments of Tommy, you know, taking the jewellery off, looking at all his loved ones who's dead, not Michael. Uh, you know, having the final smoke, the bullet with his name on. We were really, I, was, I was like, oh, we're relishing in this. This is good. And then I wrote down my notes. You can see the emotional turmoil I was in. I was like, you better die after all that. And then in capital letters, the doctor lied. I did feel a bit like, oh, I kind of was like, all of that and he's not going to die based on something that feels a bit, I don't know, a bit, yeah. The idea of someone being told they're terminally ill and it being a lie as a tactic to get somebody to kill themselves, I thought was genius and pretty pretty unique. I don't know whether anyone, that plot twist or device has been used. You know, can you think of another example of that being used at all? And is it that far-fetched? I mean, I, I for me, it was entirely plausible you know what I didn't quite understand the wagon was on the top of the hill very close to the doctor's house hmm just by chance he's picked that hill I think there was a period of time between it that they didn't necessarily have time to convey effectively but I think he learns about it on one hill (laughs) and then moves his wagon to another hill in view of the doctors but the two hills do look very similar yeah, thank. That helps, but it would. Yeah, I was just a bit like, mm, I'm not going to take that. But we'll we'll swiftly move past it because I'm loving it so much. Yeah, I was saying this before the, at the beginning of the episode about how I've kind of gone back and forth over that since I've watched it, and I think it's because everything was about Tommy dying. Everything was focused to this point, and it's the last episode. And we were talking, you know, how does he survive this? How do they do the film with him? Because everything is pointed towards him dying at the very end. And so, obviously, there's an element of that where you know the rug is pulled away and it turns out that he's not going to die. That is a little disappointing because we lose that finality of that, but. We didn't have any of that Tommy can't breathe, Tommy's touching his chest where, where he thinks it might be. There was none of that, which, which I think helps. I think had there been really ham-fisted moments of him not being well, I think I would have 
said, no, this is bollocks. But they they avoided that. There was none of that cheap nonsense to, to try and sell that. Because of all, all of the trauma that would have caused the, the fitting and can be explained by his, you know, his daughter. Well, no, he's, he was fitting before his daughter's death, wasn't he? Well, it can be explained by Paul's death, I think. And all of the dialogue about him being a cold, dead man with no heartbeat and his mortality and whether he's got limitations and all of that different stuff, I think can be explained by where he was as a character after Paul's death and what he wanted to achieve in those other moments. And actually really added a lot, I think, to it. You know, the fact that his his emotional unavailability to the people who loved him, like Lizzie and Arthur, his determination and his commitment and his blinkered, like, you know, often compared to a horse, but that kind of blinkered nature of this is what I've got to achieve and I'm going to do that at all costs, similar to Peacemaker. I enjoyed all of that. I thought it was great. I, I genuinely thought it was all leading to Tommy's death. And I was like, I don't care about the film. I want a satisfying end to this season or this series. I just felt like we got the best of both worlds and then we got a satisfying end to the series. But we also still got Tommy Shelby living on to fight another day and, and do something hopefully very, very cool in a film in World War Two. I think also from the other side of that can see it is believable because Oswald just always knows what's going on. He's one of the few people that's kind of a step ahead of Tommy often. So I get that. I think it is plausible that he would have the vision to set that up. But it also like justified the whole the whole reason for bringing Oswald Mosley and Diana Mitford in as characters into the show. I mean, ov- obviously to highlight the the fascism that was going on at the time, but but as a device to provide this way out for the character at the end. I was bemoaning the fact that we know what happens to them, so there's less jeopardy with those characters, but actually it really justified their inclusion in the show in an additional way for Mosley and Mitford in The Peaky Blinders, for me. Absolutely. So now we come to the end. What were your favourite ever Peaky Blinders moments. One of them also involves the final thing we see, which kind of bookends the very first thing we see, which is Tommy on a horse, which I which I really liked. We saw Tommy run off into the, the distance. He was kind of missing the horse rearing onto his hind legs and a kind of a Zorro-esque moment, I think, on that horse. But no, I, I still think that opening scene is fantastic with the orange or red powder, just, oh, you know it's a serious show from that point on. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's so clear in my memory, that shot. Like you, Damien, I was like, within about 10 seconds, I was like, yes, I'm in. And I literally like, haven't had that very often with TV. And it's just, it was immediately so visual. And he was such a sort of figure in, you know, riding down on, on that horse and, yeah, I, I, it's so clear in my mind, that opening shot, totally. It's been such a long journey. I'm trying to think of all the other things that have happened. I think for me, it's, it's those twists that the show did so brilliantly. It, it always gave you something unexpected. And when Grace gets shot, because the first two seasons, it sort of led you in gently and then episodes five and six were mental. But this was, Grace was getting shot in episode one of season three and it was just such a big moment 
But before that, I think the, one of the most satisfying moments was Aunt Paul killing Inspector Campbell. And a lot of my favourite Peaky moments, other than anyone saying, by order of the Peaky Blinders or don't fuck with the Peaky Blinders, the majority of my favourite moments of the show come from Aunt Paul. Um, her killing of Inspector Campbell, the moment where she deals with the nuns. There's so many like brilliant scenes that she had in those early seasons. Yeah, one of the Aunt Paul scenes that really get me is when she's just like, fuck this, us women deserve our rights. This kind of semi-suffragette moment. She leads everyone down to the bull ring and Tommy and the lads are like, do we need to be worried about this? <laughs> yeah, there is that iconic sort of, because obviously it's a lot of the slow-mo walking is with the guys and their swooping coats. So there's that iconic, all the women walking down the road looking badass. That is was an amazing moment in Peaky history. I think there's a t- just a few tiny moments that I loved. I think it's season one when, do they go to like, um they go to London, don't they? And they absolutely rip the place apart. They beat everybody up. They smash everything. And then I think Arthur's just like, we're the Peaky fucking blinders on the mic. When they're going down to London, I remember Arthur on the back of the car shouting, the Peaky blinders are going on us holidays. (laughs) It's such a strong memory for me. I just love that. (laughs) I think that is the iconic by order of the Peaky blinders with Arthur at the microphone in, in the club in London. Absolutely. John getting shot as well. It's such a, again, it happens, I think it's early in season four and just so unexpected a moment and utterly gutting to lose that that character from the show. There's very few flabby moments in the Peaky Blinders. Each season is six episodes long and it's it, it drives forward all the time. Even when it feels slow, those slow moments are so important in the overall story, setting you up for those dramatic and those big and exciting moments. It's very lean. There's not much flab at all, I think, to the Peaky Blinders. Another moment for me, I think it's, it might be the end of series three, where Tommy gets pulled over and taken to a field by some of Churchill's men, and he's digging his own grave. And then at the last second, one of the guys shoots one of the other guys and says, right, bury him. Winston's got a job for you. And you think, right, okay, shit. Well, this is kicked up to another level now because instead of being against, you know, the government and being proper wrongens, they're kind of half working within the system. It's the Red Hand Gang, isn't it? There at the graveside with him. And, I, you know, that opening theme music, the music throughout Peaky Blinders, you know, obviously has been in- incredible. But the opening theme song is, you know, is definitely one that will be remembered for many, many years. God, I've just remembered Sam Neill was in it. Throwback, season one. He was great. I mean, if we think about the people, the kind of more season by season characters, you know, Samuel, Adrian Brody, Tom Hardy, Stephen Graham, like these are huge names that they pulled in and for good reason. Awesome. I'm going to miss it a lot. Got a film. It's all right. Yeah. Just say a huge thank you, really, to every single person who's worked on, done any, had anything to do with the making of the Peaky Blinders because it has just been a, such a superb TV show. Um, so whether you're Killian Murphy or the T-Boy on the final episode, T-Boy or girl, T-Person, we salute you 
And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for, for providing us with such wonderful televisual treats. Making the Brummy accent international, sexy and cool. <laughs> so, so, what else have you been watching? So I am watching Top Boy, loving it so much. I said in the WhatsApp group that I think that we should test people's vocab. So Grace, how much of Top Boy have you seen? I'm halfway through season three. Right. And Adam, how much have you seen of Top Boy? It's, it's literally the next thing on my watch list. I've seen none of it at all. And I know Neil hasn't seen any of it. So I was thinking maybe in a future episode, we should have a vocab test to see how people would last on the streets of Summerhouse. And we thought maybe other people might pick a show with very specific language involved and others can have a go. So keep an eye out for that. Other than that, I've not really been watching much else. I'm still planning to rewatch season five of Better Call Saul because more and more trailers and fun and exciting things are being released all the time. I'm two episodes into my Better Call Saul rewatch. I highly recommend it. I've forgotten how much I've forgotten. Grace, how about you? What have you been watching? Well, I've also been watching Top Boy, but I did do a bit of a bad thing and I watched two episodes of Is It Cake on Netflix. Yeah, Damo, good sigh there. A valid sigh. Fair. I don't know what happened. It happened. I'm not proud. There we go. This was a show when I saw, saw that it was on that combines baking with, I hesitate to use the word, trashy reality format, but a reality format, let's say. And I thought, Grace, this was, you know, given that our conversations about Great British Bake Off in the past, I was pretty sure you would have watched at least one or two episodes. I mean, I've heard good things about Is It Cake. Is it a worthy watch or not? No, it's awful. It's so bad. It's, okay, I'm not even going to... I don't even want to say the title of it in the same sentence as The Great British Bake Off. We're going to take that away because that is obviously golden telly, untouchable. Is It Cake is fucking ridiculous. So basically it's these bakers that come in and they have to make cakes look like other things, like a handbag or a shoe or a pile of money. Damien? Yeah, I feel like this has already been and gone. Like, wasn't this a huge thing like two years ago? videos where you go oh fuck that was a cake i thought that was a brick wall or i thought there was a a kitchen sink it feels like someone who maybe has not got their finger on the pulse uh, has suddenly gone oh do you know i saw a video of the other day when i was on facebook it was of someone cutting open a toaster but it wasn't really a toaster it was a cake sounds fantastic let's give it a 15 episode series it's in the top 10 Netflix shows in the UK at the moment, Is It Cake? And, um, but, but essentially the, the premise is exactly that. People make cakes that look like other things and then people have to decide whether it's a cake or whether it's actually the real thing. Exactly. And it being in the top 10 doesn't mean anything, Adam. As Mark said to Jez, people like Coldplay and they vote for the Tories. You can't trust people. I think that's something we really need to really, really get in. Yeah, it's really bad. So basically these people have got to make cakes that look like other things, okay? And then they get these, spoiler alert, D-list celebrities to come on and guess, is it cake? <gasps> Who cares? No one. <laughs> I briefly care which celebrities. 
Okay, the last one I bought was a celebrity stylist. Some, right, okay. some comedian, I don't know who it is. And then they often have some sort of baker or chef on there to give it some tiny crumb of kudos. It's bad, guys. Don't go there. The episodes are a bloated 35 minutes long when they could be about 12 minutes. I have lost oh, an hour and 10 minutes of my life. I would say if you want a baking show, just rewatch Old Bake Offs. Okay, good stuff. So um, before this week, I'd been watching a lot of Oscar movies. And uh, in, in reaction to that, I've watched a hell of a lot of TV shows. So strap in, here I go. This is what I've been watching. Bel Air, I finished Bel Air. I mentioned this before. This was The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, remade as a drama show, um, starring the brilliant Jabari Banks. Uh, it became a little bit American soapy by the end. But this show deals with the definition of blackness, anxiety, discrimination, the toxicity of social media, drug abuse, and abandonment issues in a convincing and interesting way. So I really felt the value of this show. At times it was a felt a little bit forced here and there, um, but I genuinely, genuinely, generally enjoyed the show and I think it's worth a watch. Ollie Sholatan has some really, really great moments. Jabari Banks I think is a huge find and will go on to be a, a big star. Um, it's really set up nicely for a second season. So I can see that that will potentially go on. But yeah, very glad that I watched Bel Air, enjoyed the early nods to The Fresh Prince, and since then appreciated what it's what it's been aiming to deal with and bring to the public consciousness. Pachinko is number two show I've been watching. This is gorgeous. This is an era-spanning look. Uh, one family across four generations. So we start off with Sunya's birth and early life, and then we cut with her as a grandparent. So we see her from the very start of her life to her being a grandparent. When she's young, her parents own a boarding house, and it's very much about that early stages of the Japanese control over Korea and the tension that that causes. And then in present day, Sunya's grandson, Solomon, works for a bank and he's promised to close a deal in Korea. Works for an American bank, um, but he's promised to make this deal in Korea. And Solomon's father runs a pachinko parlor. Um, and pachinko is again, similar to a sort of pinball, but from a different angle. Um, it's really, it's just stunning and really beautiful. I watched the first two episodes, it's a really heartbreaking end to the first episode. It's only five episodes long. But I'm just, yeah, really, really into Pachinko. It's on Apple TV and well worth a watch. It's on my list. It's so on my list because Pachinko is huge in Japan and Korea. It's absolutely massive. People are obsessed and addicted to it. So I find it, I'm, yeah, I'm really fascinated by it. It's definitely led me to want to learn more about the relationship between Japan and Korea and how that has developed over time because it's so pertinent to this show. And it's a gap in my own personal knowledge. Performance is really, really strong. It's, it, yeah, it, it's just stunning and it's definitely worth a watch. Another show on Apple TV that I've been watching, first two episodes of is Slow Horses. So the premise of this, River Cartwright, 
has an epic fail in a training exercise, which rather harshly, I think, for a training... I mean, you're supposed to get training exercises wrong, right? Anyway, he, he gets this so badly wrong um, that it lands him in Slough House. I mean, I should say it's an MI5 training exercise. So pretty high stakes. In Slough House, Jackson Lamb, played by Gary Oldman, rules the roost. And he regularly pokes fun at his team, reminding them of their flaws and failures. It's just on the right side of bullying. But you throw in a kidnap and you throw by a far right group and a dodgy journalist. And there's loads of stuff here to propel us through the first two episodes. I'm fascinated to see how this team of failures and fuck ups are going to come together to solve something. As I'm sure that's where this series is going. Cast are all superb. Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, you got Jonathan Price, Gary Oldman, as I've already mentioned, bringing their A-game. The first two episodes, really compelling, really interesting. I'm really looking forward to the rest of this season as it develops week by week on Apple TV. And then the final one, I think I've mentioned this before, but the dropout on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's the story of Elizabeth Holmes, whose drive to invent something that will change the world sends her to some pretty dark places. And we're reminded by interviews that bookend each episode that she ends up in a trial for criminal fraud. Amanda Seyfried plays this ambitious, very, very quirky character superbly. And her kind of, she keeps talking about wanting to change the world and save the world, which keeps her on the right side of sympathetic, but she's incredibly ambitious and quirky and and so you're, you're kind of conflicted about the central character throughout. Um, Stephen Fry joins the cast at episode two, adding a certain Stephen Fryness to the show. I mean, he's, he's actually really good in this, um, but unmistakably Stephen Fry. Um, <laughs> it's quite similar to Dope Sick in the way that it sort of shows how things can spiral in frightening ways. Um, it's, it's perhaps less dis, less dis, less depressing as dope sick um but equally revealing in how things can just escalate and escalate in mad and crazy ways i will be dropping in to the dropout on a regular basis <laughs> but then other than that i'm still enjoying ptolemy gray the final episode's coming out this week so i'm going to talk more talk about ptolemy gray more next week but it's another apple tv show I'm really, really enjoying. That's my epic TV review done. Nice work. That's the, that's good going, that. No, is it cake for you? I really want to check out an episode of Is It Cake? Don't do it, Adam. <laughs> I love cake. <laughs> Why found that so funny? Okay, I'm going to talk about what's coming soon. And I've got an apology to make because I made a recent post on the old Book of Faces and other social media platforms about what's coming up in April, and I got, well, my information was correct at the time of posting, but Welcome to Eden, or Bienvenidos a Eden, is not coming to Netflix until the 6th of May, I subsequently learned. So I'm retracting that from my list of the shows coming up in April. Winning time, anyone care about basketball? Should we talk about this? I like basketball, I don't know anything about it, but I like watching it. Great, well, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, is available to watch now on Sky or Now TV. It stars John C. Riley and Quincy Isaiah. 
It's about the Los Angeles Laker, um, who became one of the most successful and revered basketball teams in the 1980s, who basically changed the face of basketball. It's out now. There's episodes dropping weekly. Nice. I'll give it a watch. Also, The Split. Either of you watched The Split season one or two? No, but my friend could not stop talking about it the other night. So it's it's moved up my list quite quickly. I tried to watch it and I didn't really get on with it, which is a real shame because I absolutely love, 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 love Nicola Walker. I think she is awesome. But I just couldn't get into it. I'm afraid it's not my vibe. We've also got Stephen Mangan in there. Uh, it's about a family of sisters working as divorce lawyers coming face to face with their past after their estranged father returns to the fold. This is season three that's coming out. It's notable because special guest of the TV DNA podcast on one of our Walking Dead episodes, Bradley Crease, he actually appears in episode one, I believe, of season three as a doorman. I will definitely be watching that episode to see my brother from another play. We played brothers in a play that Adam directed well pre-pandemic so that tells you how long ago it was but I'll definitely be looking forward to seeing Bradley on the small screen so there's one other show I wanted to preview and that is Dirty Lines which comes out on Friday the 8th of April on Netflix this is a drama series following two brothers who launched Europe's first erotic telephone line service in 1980s Amsterdam Sounds like the kind of thing you might flick your penny to. Oh, no. Don't hang up. (laughs) Right, in news then, there's there's a big, big piece of news in that the TV BAFTAs have come out. Have you seen the nominations for the TV BAFTAs? No. So the BAFTA TV Awards have been nominated. It's a Sin leads the way. I think they've got 11 nominations within the BAFTAs. In drama series, we've got In My Skin... Manhunt, Unforgotten, which I thought was absolutely brilliant, and Vigil. It feels to me like there were four better shows than that. I've not seen any of those shows. Well, Vigil and Unforgotten, I've definitely seen. Unforgotten would be my tip of those two. Also starring Nicola Walker, Unforgotten, is it? And Sanjeev Bhaskar. Yes, absolutely. And it's coming back. Unforgotten is coming back. Do we know this? Well, we do now. Best miniseries, uh, It's a Sin, which I'm sure we'd all agree deserves it landscapers which i didn't actually get to see although catherine did and quite enjoyed stephen and time i actually prefer time to it's a sin although it's a sin is brilliant and great and i loved it i actually think time edges it for me i only saw half of time and i preferred it to it's a sin i'm definitely on the it's a sin bandwagon for um for this award anyway let's move on because we've got a lot to cover international series so many here, Call My Agent, Lupin, Mayor of Easttown, Squid Game, Succession, and The Underground Railroad. I mean, how you choose between those six incredible shows, but you obviously pick Succession, right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, or, or maybe The Underground Railroad. I just want to quickly say, I don't know if you guys know this, they are redoing Call My Agent in England called, I think it's 10% or something like that with Helena Bonham Carter and lots of other famous actors sending themselves up. Will it be a pile of rubbish or not? Who knows? I mean, I've seen a trailer for it, Damo. I think it looks pretty good. It's got 
Jack Davenport, who will forever be miles from this life for me. But the actors that they've got lined up to play versions of themselves, I'm a little bit looking forward to 10%. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. Actor and actress nominations. We've got people like Jodie Comer in Help, Kate Winslet, Mayor of Easttown, Lydia Weston, It's a Sin, Ollie Alexander in It's a Sin, Sean Bean in Time, Stephen Graham in Help. There's lots of different, you know, who knows who's going to win in any of these categories. I would like to just give a little shout out to Neve Algar from The Seat, who I think is brilliant. It was a four-parter on Channel 4, I think. And as I said at the time, there's a bit in the third episode that's a bit off. Other than that, I think she's fantastic. She was brilliant in The Virtues. She's good in Raised by Wolves as well. I would love to see her take it because she, that means she gets some more work and I'd like to see more of her on screen because I think she's a very interesting actor. Um, there's a few nominations for Sex Education in the Performance in the Comedy Programme category as well as things like We Are Lady Parts and Statelette's Flats. I am scanning through a supporting actor. It's interesting with the BAFTAs in that Succession is considered an international show but because the British actors within international shows can be considered for that. So Matthew McFadden is in the supporting actor category, uh, along with various It's a Sin actors and Stephen Graham again. Leah Harvey in Foundation, um, that's who I'm pinning my hopes on for supporting actress, although Tahira Sharif in The Tower, also very good. Yeah, a few, a few shows that we've talked about over time, including Reality and Constructed Factual, Grace. <laughs> Married at First Sight UK is up for this. Thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. It really should be nominated in Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay. Should be in all of them, really. Outstanding TV. So I, I see it's Gogglebox, which I have seen and enjoyed. Married at First Sight UK, RuPaul's Drag Race and The Doghouse. So my question to you, Grace, is how good is The Doghouse? Not seen The Doghouse. What? what? I've been in it plenty, but I've not seen it. Channel 4 is so off my radar. I mean, with so many stations, I know they do Dairy Girls, but at the moment, I really don't know what else Channel 4 does. Like we've had BBC dramas, we've had ITV dramas, and then it's and then it's the streamers. I, I just don't know what Channel 4 does anymore. I go to it for my news. Absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, currently the best place to get your news in the UK, Channel 4. I would say you are missing a trick. The problem is the ads are, oh my God, constant if you try and watch anything on 4OD. But there are so many great shows, uh, dramas and comedies to watch on Channel 4. So I would suggest, I know you always have a long list of things to watch, Adam, but let's not forget Channel 4 brought us Top Boy amongst other fantastic shows. Now, I Am Victoria. Did anyone see any of the I Ams on Channel 4? No, because I don't watch Channel 4. Well, there you go, Adam. Now you've got something. These are single, single drama episodes about different women. So there's like I Am Victoria, I Am, and then another woman's name. And yeah, they are brilliant. There's one with Vicky McClure in it, which is absolutely outstanding. Um, and they're basically different stories of different women at different stages in their lives. And they're just, they're shot, but they're quite interesting because basically the camera never really leaves the woman's face for most of the, the shot, for most of the uh, drama. So I, I, any of the I Ams on Channel 4, I definitely recommend those. Now the Virgin Must See Meet Moment nominees, a couple of these we've talked about, 
on the podcast. The Strictly Come Dancing, Rose and Giovanni's Silent Dance is one of these on here. We've definitely talked about Squid Game a lot and It's a Sin as well. Interesting to see some of those bits and pieces that we've talked about over the last year appearing on this. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll probably come back and talk more about the results of the BAFTAs. We're not going to make any predictions or anything silly like that. Fascinating to see and a really great to see It's a Sin and other bits and pieces recognised there. So other news, sadly, this week we lost June Brown, who played Dot Cotton for an incredible amount of time, was an OBE and an MBE, a national treasure in the very best sense of the word. Do you have any memories of June Brown? Anything you want to share? I loved her style as an older woman. I thought that was amazing. She just really was individual in the way that she dressed and she was really, really fucking cool. Yeah, I don't know what there is to add about her, really. I mean, I'm kind of lost for words. She was just such a totemic part of a huge UK show. I, I think there are a few shows you can talk about that are bigger than EastEnders, unless you're going to talk about Coronation Street, really, in terms of state of the nation soaps. Dot was very much of her era, right? I mean, even by the time we got the 90s, life had moved on a little bit from how she saw life. So there was this beautiful kind of time capsule, I guess, of of a part of London that by the time I was watching EastEnders had already ceased to exist, but she still very much lived that. I thought she was brilliant. And the stuff she did with John Altman, her on-screen son, Nick, I think all that stuff was really good as well. Just so much. Was there a euthanasia story as well that she yeah. that she was part of? Like, And that was so groundbreaking. I remember I didn't watch EastEnders at that point, but I watched that bit and just, I remember thinking, wow, bloody hell, she's so good. There's the way she played that was just so, so, so small and real and beautiful. And I, I can't really describe her performance anymore without starting to sound pretentious. I just think she was brilliant and it's a loss to our industry, but we're lucky to have had her. An interview that she did alongside Lady Gaga that's apparently worth watching. You know that game where you, you stick a, a, a piece of paper to your head with the name of a famous person on and you've got to try and ask questions to find out who you are. There was definitely a period in my family's history where Doc Cotton would have been one of those names that you put on people's heads. That is national treasure status, isn't it? Definitely. And I believe that game is called The Great I Am. That's good cool. to know. We've never, we've never put a name to it before. So um, I, that, that is now forever what I would call it. In other news, and I, I do want a reaction to this one before you go to, I know we're, we're running long and late. The cast of The Full Monty are returning for a sequel TV series. The Full Monty was, someone might need to Google this, but what year? I think it was 93. So... Pretty much the entire cast of The Full Monty are reforming for a Disney Plus series, release date unknown, sequel show. It's not a where are they now thing. This is going to be a dramatic, these characters, not the actors, the 
characters are going to be reappearing in modern day Sheffield, however many years since the full Monty, as those characters again. Thoughts, reactions, hopes, desires, please. Well, first of all, it was 97, not 93, got that wrong. Secondly, I'm confused. Are the actors returning or is it the characters we're seeing again? Both. Whoa. I don't know what to think. I mean, The Full Monty is one of my all-time favourite films, let alone British films. I think it's just so, I just love it so much. So I just, I don't really know what, the ending is so perfect of that movie. What, 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 what story do we have left to tell? Thoughts on a postcard? I think, yeah, fair enough if maybe they got new actors in and maybe updated it so we had that story again. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we've moved on as a society, then being a male stripper is uh, less risque a topic than it would have been in the late 90s. I guess my only wish would be, given that it's Sheffield, that there's some reason for Sean Bean to be there. (laughs) As the king of Sheffield. In other news, um, Happy Valley's available again on iPlayer, which makes me very happy, having never seen it before and being desperate to catch up before the new season arrives this year. So as well as Top Boy, Happy Valley is on my watch list right now, and I'm going to be watching lots of that over the next couple of weeks. I think that's going to be quite an exciting thing to watch in parallel, Adam, because you're looking at basically... Crime in London and dodgy peeps up north. And there's there'll be some quite nice overlaps there, I think. Do you think I need a bit of, is it a cake, just to no. break up my crime? No, no, you don't. Don't need that. Don't do it. It's a cake is a crime to TV in and of itself. You don't need anything else. And don't, for a laugh, watch it, because that's how Emily Paris got a second series. People hate watching stuff. I will die on that hill. Almost like (laughs) Thomas Shelby, I will die on that hill. I'm excited for you, Adam. I'm jealous that you're going to watch Happy Valley. I might watch it again. We've had to go long because we've had lots to talk about, but this has been a really enjoyable ride through the final season of the Peaky Blinders. Thank you both very, very much for joining me on, on this journey. We're going to be back. Obviously, TV DNA is going to continue and we'll be back. Grace, you're going to join us for some future episodes? Yeah, definitely. Who's going to bring the tone down if I'm not there? (laughs) Well, if you would like to let us know what you've been watching, let us know what you thought of the final ever episode of Peaky Blinders, you can let us know on social media. You can find us on Twitter at TV DNA pod on Instagram at TVDNAPod, they're the same. And on Facebook, just search TV Space DNA. And you can also email us. We love hearing from people. If you email us, it's tvdna at gmail.com. Just because I think Grace's internet cut out, just to repeat, the email is tvdnapod at gmail.com. Well, we'll be back. We're going to be back very, very soon with our final episode of The Walking Dead of this mid-season third weird third season of the walking dead and then we'll be back beyond that with better call Saul and our regular tv recommendations so service will resume shortly yeah and as i said there will be a top boy vocab lesson if there's any other shows that you think have a very significant and uh, specific 
lexicon, then let us know and we'll see if one of us is a big fan of it as well and we can test the others on their knowledge of said lexography. And if you're um, still trying to process what happened at the Oscars, I do highly recommend listening to our Oscars reaction episode where we debunk everything that was going on there. Let's finish this now. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. And my name is is Adam Hemming. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. (laughs) Fucking hell, Damien, use your words.